Today we're going to be talking about Acts chapter 10. And I got to say, Acts chapter 10 gives us a pretty cool Father's Day message. It's a little, it's not the whole thing, but at the beginning of Acts 10, we meet a man named Cornelius. Cornelius is an awesome name. If I had another boy, I think I would consider that name because he's a pretty cool dude. He is kind of the man. He kind of reminds me of what I would think The Rock might be today. You might be surprised to hear me say that. Dwayne Johnson, by the way, um, if you didn't catch on. The guy, the big guy with muscles. And, uh, Centurion's kind of, this Centurion Cornelius is kind of, kind of the man. He's kind of the man. Like, people look to him and say, you are a good dude. Let's jump in. Acts 10, 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a Centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Caesarea was the seat of the Roman government of Judea. Judea is the Greco-Roman name for the land of Judah, and the word Judea comes from the adjective Jewish. So it's the section of Jewish life in the Greco-Roman Empire. It's just one of those names that gets thrown around in Scripture a lot, and I thought it might be nice to go over that. Centurions of Rome were men who were known for good conduct. That was a qualification to be a centurion, as well as constant character. A cohort, well, backing up, a centurion, as many of you may know, was in charge of a hundred men in the army, in the Greco, in the Roman army. And centurions made as much as five times as the pay of a normal soldier. So he was wealthy. Uh, if you remember the centurion, the story of the centurion in Luke 7, I'm going to read that. Because we see kind of an attitude about centurions repeat itself in Luke 7 as in Acts. When Jesus had finished saying these things, Saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant whom the master valued highly was sick and about to die. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Observe the people sticking up for the centurion in this case. And the company, the people around Cornelius were no different. You'll see that as the story plays out. They kind of stick up for Cornelius. They say, he's a godly man. He's a good guy. And then another reference to a centurion in Luke 7, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last The centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, Surely this man was a righteous man. Some might conclude that Cornelius may have been retired. It's a bit odd that he was in Caesarea, because there was probably little military presence in that area, 
given the fact of this reference in, well, I didn't actually type it up, but in Acts 12, 20 through 23, it suggests that the armies were aimed at Tyre and Sidon because Herod was just mad. He was, he was doing his thing. He, he had the military somewhere else. There's a little bit of evidence to suggest that. Another thing I want us to know about Cornelius is that he was a God-fearer. Acts 10.2 says, A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the poor, and prayed continually to God. Note Luke the physician does not say he is Jewish. He doesn't say he's Christian, but a God-fearer. It's strange. What do we think of Cornelius in his faith journey? What's going on? Is he Jewish? Well, one thing is that Peter identifies him as a Gentile very clearly in, I'm kind of jumping ahead, in Acts 10.28. And Peter is talking to Cornelius, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person unclean. Peter is saying, I can't hang out. I don't, you know, at first he's like, I can't hang out with you because, you know, that's the, that's the reputation. Jews can't hang out with Gentiles. Um, so it implies there that he's clearly Gentile, but he's kind of friendly to the Jewish line of thinking. My Bible dictionary explains it this way. Cornelius was a God-fearing man, strongly attracted to the Jewish teaching of monotheism, the belief in one God, as opposed to pagan idolatry and immorality, and to the concern expressed in the law of Moses concerning helping the poor and needy. He was a moral man who was thinking that the Jewish religion had something going on, and I, I kind of want to be a part of that. Cornelius, though, was ripe for conversion. God was working in Cornelius' life, clearly. And the Lord, God knew, God saw it, as we'll soon see. Another thing that we need to know about Cornelius is he was a family shepherd. Acts 10.2, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. A great quote from Vadi Bachman says, For God's Old Testament people, private prayer, morning and evening, hallowed daily life, and family religion pervaded the home. A key verse in the Old Testament that really expands on this is Deuteronomy 6, 3 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. There is little doubt in my mind that Cornelius strived 
to live this lifestyle. May this be true of every household that is hearing this. May we be dads who impress on our children and teach diligently to our children and to our grandchildren the truth, the commandments of God, how to walk with God. Cornelius influenced his family to the point at which his whole household is described as following in his fear of God. Not only did Cornelius influence his family, it extended out. Let's check out Acts 10.22. And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Perhaps, as I said earlier, Cornelius maybe was a bit of a celebrity. If he, the whole Jewish nation knew of his reputation, he was an influential man. We, as people in society, men and women, but I'm speaking to dads, Fathers, we need to use our influence in the home and in the workplace, wherever we go. I think, for me, sometimes I go through life and I try to be as invisible as possible. And I think we have to get out of that kind of thinking. I think Cornelius was willing to make waves, He had a reputation, and he did stuff, good things, too. It's not all about talking at people. It's about living a lifestyle. The centurion in the Gospels was responsible for helping build something. He was helped build the synagogue. So I'm going to come to another kind of strange twist. I'm going to Genesis 2.15 now. It says this, very beginning of scripture. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Both men and women are responsible to work our gardens. Is this mean that I have to go plant stuff in the ground to make this work? No, I think the implication is much deeper. The people in our lives, working the soil, working and loving, tending, making things grow, that is what is implied in Genesis 2.15. And it's not just horticulture. It's relationships. Moving on to a quote, from a book that I love. Today we are accustomed to leaders who use their followers seeking only personal or organizational gain from the flock. But a true shepherd's attention and passion are directed toward the well-being of the sheep themselves. Who are the sheep in in your life? Are you caring for them? Are you a boss of employees? And do you care for them? Do you care for the people in your family? Do you care for the people that are working alongside you? 
Cornelius was a family shepherd. He was a shepherd in other areas. Fathers, this is the honor we long for, isn't it? We want to be known for being selfless. We want a reputation, a shining reputation like Cornelius. Wouldn't it be great to have that influence with the people around us and in our world and in our circle of friends that we have that respect? Oh, I love respect as a guy. I want guy people to respect me more than anything. And Cornelius had it. But Cornelius did not have the whole package. We'll see that a little bit later. Before I get ahead, Cornelius was also a man of prayer. Unfortunately, many of us do not create margin for prayer or margin for much of anything. That's a... I feel like I don't have much margin right now. We must make time for our benefit and to open ourselves up to the Lord working through prayer. Here's a quote by Christopher J. Gordon. Yes, few pray. It is just one of those things assumed as a matter of course, but seldom practiced. A thing which is everybody's business, but in fact, hardly anybody performs. This theme of prayer is going to be woven through Acts 10. We're going to see it play out again. Cornelius was a man of prayer. We'll soon see because he sees a vision of the Lord while he's praying. And Cornelius, ironically, sees a vision of the Lord while he's praying. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. As great a man Cornelius was, he did not have yet a saving faith in Christ. He did not have it yet. And many men, you know, it's intimidating to come to church. I don't know your comfort level with church, but at different times of my life, I'm more and less comfortable with church as I've grown up. And maybe you are so used to coming to church and exude that you've got it together. Much like Cornelius, maybe your kids look great. They look great for Christmas card photos to send out to our friends. Maybe you are try working really hard to make people believe that you do indeed have it together, but you are missing something, and that is Christ in your heart. And Cornelius fits the bill. He does. I just want to challenge fathers today. Is Jesus in your heart? These things are great, but without him in there, it doesn't mean a whole lot. God's divine passion is that we know him. That is what Acts 10 is all about. And he's passionate about fathers, mothers, everybody, Jew and Gentile, knowing him. All right, Acts 10, 3 through 8. Cornelius, moving ahead with Cornelius, he sees a vision. He sees an angel. Cornelius 10, 3 through 8. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, 
Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers in alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him and departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. What is first noteworthy right away is that Cornelius sees an angel. No big deal, right? Happens all the time. No, that's actually not correct. We may read scripture like that, but in reality, something of great significance always happens when someone sees an angel and Cornelius falls right in line with being terrified when he sees an angel. Angels appear in the book of Acts four times. I have three references, four times at least. I may be mistaken, but three times at least that I'm going to note here. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Acts 5.19 Acts 8.26 says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. I think I said 29. I meant 26. Acts 12.7 and 8. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up! And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. These three instances, the angel says, get up and do something. You know, and to Simon, and to Cornelius, he says, send men to Joppa. He's very specific here. He says, send men to Joppa, find a man named Peter, who's staying at another guy named Peter, Simon's house, the tanner. Very specific. Very specific. And he shares all the information with the people he sends. God is establishing his church, stating the obvious, in Acts. And he deems it important enough to send angels. It tells you that in the day-to-day life of a believer, we need to be part of this institution God has intentionally established. It's not optional. It's an important event. Angel appears three, four times in Acts. It says something about the church, the establishment of the church. Moving forward, what is about to take place? What is about to take place? As much as the good qualities of Cornelius and the obedience of Peter, this happens because God wants it to happen. He uses the people, oh sure, but he wills it, and it's intentional. It's not a mistake. It's not something that is contrived. And I think the Lord really wants us to see the intentionality of his passion. Next, Peter 
has a vision. Acts 10, 9 through 16. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preaching, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has called clean, do not call unclean. This happened three times, one, two, three, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Note the care that Luke takes in recording the simultaneous events, the time, the hour, the next day. People are on the way while Peter has this vision. It's a simultaneous thing that's coinciding God does seem to be at work at both ends of a situation. Have you ever seen God at work in on two ends of a situation? I have a story about my grandmother. It was a few years ago, and she had really... I had been trying to breach the conversation of my faith to her, and... uh Finally, one day I had the courage to talk to her and I did. And she says, and of course I was praying for her all these years. And she says to me, Scott, I have been thinking about God all the time. And what transpired was she ended up praying the sinner's prayer right there. And she was in her nineties. Unlikely occurrence. But it just goes to show you that sometimes God is at work at both ends of a situation. The Holy Spirit is at work in this world. Scripture says that he convicts people of sin. And and I think we've made a huge mistake because we think that God is not at work anymore. It's a mistake. One of my favorite verses right now is Ephesians 2.10. I love it because it speaks to our identity, what we're created for. I love it because it points to God's sovereignty, that he prepares things, that he knows things ahead of time. I'm just going to go ahead and read it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is moving. So we should do these good works. They are prepared beforehand. Moving on, for the Jewish tradition, they would pray three times a day. Psalm fifty-five seventeen is a key verse that says, and David is saying this, evening and morning, And at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and and he hears my voice. 9 a.m. is considered the third hour of prayer, three hours after sunrise. 12 p.m. is the sixth hour. 3 p.m. is the ninth hour. That is a devotion to prayer that we should strive for. Yet, Scripture says 
Do more than that. Pray constantly. We need to pray. The, the prayer topic has resurfaced. Much like Cornelius, Peter is praying, but in the sixth hour, Peter becomes hungry and naturally wanted something to eat. God uses this hunger perhaps to stir in him the vision. What do we make of the sheet? It's kind of strange. I think of myself when I was a kid, my brother and sister were both older than me, and they would launch me in a sheet in, in the air. I thought it was the coolest thing. But I don't want to take that away from the gravity of this because it's way more important than that. The sheet represents, I believe, the church. And what do, what do we make of these birds of the air? These are things that Peter, according to the law, in Leviticus chapter 11, goes through a tons of stuff the Jews can't eat. And apparently... This command is not supposed to be permanent because in Acts 10.15, it clearly says, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. Things are changing. Things are changing. And we're going to see that play out a little bit. Peter denies it three times. Could be a coincidence that Peter denied Christ three times. May not be too important, but I think it's somewhat interesting. What commentators suggest is that Peter is defending himself. He's like saying, no, I want to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing. That this is almost a temptation that he's supposed to to, uh, overcome. Peter has to process it for a while. I think it's almost kind of funny the way the scripture says is that he he had to think about this all day long. I just imagine Peter at the table like, I don't know, I don't know about this. And uh, he has to process it, and God gives him time to process it. Was this probably hard for Peter? Yeah, I think it was. Galatians 2.10 even points to Peter struggling with it later in his ministry. Paul confronts Peter and says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Galatians, Romans, 1 Corinthians all deal to some degree with the dietary laws that the Jews had. But all of these support the ability for Jews to move on from the dietary laws. In Romans 14, 1-3 says this, As for one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but, do, but not to quarrel over opinions, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. I believe that for Peter, God wanted him to be strong, because Paul describes the person who can eat both as strong. And I believe that Peter 
wanted him to have a a a new instruction here and a new focus and that was toward the people of the gentiles because the gentiles didn't eat that way the gentiles eat whatever i they want moving in peter's submission and obedience in acts 10:17 through 24 now while peter was inwardly perplexed i said that earlier as to what the vision that he had seen might mean behold the men who were sent by cornelius having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send you to come to this house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Note there are two journeys taken here. You know, Cornelius sends the people to Joppa, which is about 30 miles away. And next, you know, Peter obeys the Spirit and says, I'll go with you back to Caesarea. Obedience on both parties. The whole of this interaction lasted several days, maybe more than a week. Are we available for the interruptions that come for God to work? I wouldn't be too happy about my week going diff- way differently than how I think it's going to be. Like when you get sick and have to miss work, I don't know. I just, I wouldn't, that would cramp my style. And I think if a lot of us are honest, we maybe wouldn't like it. But I think I see an opposite reaction by both parties, by the parties, the camaraderie, the entourage that takes place because there is an entourage. Look at this. You know, I'm going to Acts 10.23. Some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, Peter, and then Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. And then the next thing you know, when Peter is ready to preach, there are many persons gathered. The nature of this culture is striking to me. It is so different from our own. Are we available to accompany the movement of God, of the church, Are we prioritizing meeting together, being in a small group? Are we prioritizing having people over for dinner just for the heck of it? Are we prioritizing it? Cornelius' relatives were available. The brothers 
with Peter of the circumcised were available, and a crowd eventually awaits Peter sharing the gospel. Peter arrives at Cornelius' house. Acts ten thirty four through thirty six. Then to Peter, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation. The one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know, scripture hadn't been written down on paper, so, but, however, Peter forgot to hear the full message of the Great Commission that clearly states the opposite of his attitude. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All nations. Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, even Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. An event in the Gospels foreshadowed the future ministry to Gentiles. It's the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. And from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Mark seven twenty four through 30. This doesn't seem very kind on Jesus' part at first. I've read it before and said, What's what's going on here? But notice that I think what it boils down to is Jesus has something more important in his mind with the Syrophoenician woman. He wants to see her display her faith. He wants to kind of hold off on the miracle. Wait just a minute. Let me see where your faith is at. He's seeking out to define where she's at. And she does not disappoint because she insists and believes God through Jesus has power. Considering this, we must ask ourselves, are we excluding anyone from the gospel? Are we excluding? Have we stopped praying for people that uh, we're tired of praying for and don't see any, there's no hope or something like that. Are there people in our lives that we even go so far as to say, I don't really like them, so I'm not really going to share the gospel with them. I think the human heart is capable of all kinds of beliefs like that. We all are full of bias. I know we may not think so, but we are. So it's a good reminder. Okay, moving on. Acts. 
Acts, what is this? Acts 10, 34 through 38. This is, we're on the home stretch, guys. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed to God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Through his name, Peter was still saying these things. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard, and the believers from among the circumcised who had been with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in other tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. No doubt they were thinking about Pentecost in Acts 2, where the flaming tongues and people were, they heard the, the sound of the Spirit moving in, and people were speaking in other tongues. And this is very reminiscent, very reminiscent of the same event. And note that they were astonished because it was the Gentiles. This could be incorrect, but it just feels like there's a, a level of snobbery or something. I don't know. I don't know enough about the culture, but that's kind of how it feels and how it reads. And we have to continue to ask, do we have attitudes of prejudice? Do we have attitudes that there's this people group or that people group personality? I don't like their personality. It can all, it can become in so many different forms and shades and colors in the human heart. All right, in Acts 8, 16 through 17 is another example of the Holy Spirit falling. For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. In these cases, in Acts, something obvious, external, is expressed. Speaking of tongues, it's obvious. And I think the Holy Spirit, God, wanted it to be obvious, an outward expression. Unmistakable that God is moving. It goes to show us He is working today 
to bring about, or well, backing up, this event shows us that this is sanctioned by God. It's sort of like, you ever seen action movies where they've got the military gear and they have a laser-guided missile and it goes to the place? That is what God's love is like. I mean, minus the death and destruction. (laughs) That is what God's love is like here. His divine passion is that you and I, Gentiles, we can be part of the church. And Peter is obedient to carry that message, even though maybe he's not too thrilled about it, or maybe he's uncomfortable. The fact is that God wants to do more than we are comfortable with. The Holy Spirit is at work. John 16, 7 and 8 says this. This gives us some definition to the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I, Jesus, go away. For I do not go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin in righteousness and judgment concerning sin. Because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness and judgment. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. I want us to take away two things today. I just said it. Number one, God wants to move more powerfully than we might be comfortable with. He does want to move more powerfully than we're comfortable with. Philip Keller says this, In the Christian life, there is great danger in always looking for the easy place, the cozy corner, the comfortable position where there is no hardship, no need for endurance, no demand on self-discipline, sometimes if, through self-indulgence, I am willing to forfeit or forego the soft life, the easy way, the cozy corner. Then the good shepherd may well move me to a pasture where things aren't quite so comfortable. Are you comfortable today? I, I am. I am. There's opportunities in my life that I don't seize. But we need to be open to making ourselves uncomfortable. I watched this great TED talk of this guy who was a young guy and he wanted to become like Bill Gates and he wanted, what his vision was is he says, when I grow up, I want to buy Microsoft. He had a big dream and, uh, and he put his application out all the time and he would get rejected and he would just, Oh, that's awful. I got rejected again. But then he did a Google search and he says, you know, how to overcome a je- um, rejection. And this website comes up and the website gave this idea that you go out and seek rejection. So one of the activities was, 
is I'm going to go to a Safeway and I'm going to ask a stranger, if can I borrow $100 from you? And of course, the person was like, no, I'm not going to give you $100. And then another time, he knocks on someone's door and he says, I have this plant here. Can I go in your backyard and plant it? And the person says, no, no, I would rather you not do that. And then another time he goes to Starbucks and says, he adds this, he says, would it be weird if I could ask you if I could be a Starbucks greeter? And the guy does it for an hour and he wound up saying that was not very much fun. This was really awkward. But because he said it was awkward, it kind of loosened the feel. It's a bit of a bunny trail. But the fact that the man was going for, like a running back in the offensive line, he's initiating contact. He's initiating the rejection. That's, that's crazy. I thought it was a, like one of the most cool TED Talks I had ever seen. But where, that's what it's like to bring the gospel to people, I think, especially in this area. This area needs a dramatic shift and movement of God, and we're here. We are here for a reason. We need to have faith that God is at work in our community and in the people around us. We can't assume that the Holy Spirit isn't at work. That's not biblical. He's convicting the world of sin. He is at work. I want us to get the second point is that God's divine passion for you to know him. The title of this sermon is God's divine is divine passion. And he desires that you know him. Matthew 18:12 says through 13 says if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray does not does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices I have over it more than the 99 that went astray. Whether you've been a Christian or not, Acts 10 tells you that you were the lost sheep. You need to know how much God loves you. You've heard it over and over. But think of that razor-guided missile. He wanted you to know him. The Holy Spirit grafted in the Gentiles. He wants other people to know him through you. If you don't know him, you don't have to continue that way. Ask him into your life. Fathers, ask him into your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can identify with the characters. Thank you for moving, for your divine intentional passion that we know you. I pray that the people who don't know you would, and they would have courage and cross that line. I pray that we would be obedient 
that we would bring the gospel to our community, that we would trust that your spirit is at work because he is. Thank you for grafting us in, Lord, as Gentiles. Pray that you would uh, help the dads have a great Father's Day. Help us to worship you with this last song. Amen.